Welcome to Revolve, where we explore big questions from all angles. Each season, we use one big question to dive into a topic with experts, showing how perspective matters in building thoughtful solutions. I'm Trip Williams. Season 2. What can we do to mitigate the effect of climate change for those who will be most affected by it? This season, we talk with experts to explore transforming industries like manufacturing and finance into environmental allies and how we support communities impacted by climate change the most. Today, I'm excited to be joined by Simone Shaheen, who works in ESG client coverage at sustainability sector leader MSCI, where she supports financial institutions to better understand and measure their social and environmental impact. Simone is a recent graduate of a hybrid business and policy degree at NYU, focused on social impact, innovation, and investment. Before this, Simone worked for four years in Kenya and Uganda in microfinance, where she was responsible for managing institutional partnerships for the nonprofit Village Enterprise. During this time, she also supported the first ever development impact bond for poverty alleviation in Africa. And prior to her field experience, Simone was a professional equestrian show jumper, managing global operations for a private equestrian company. And before we we begin, one important note for the audience, Simone here today will be sharing her personal views and observations. She is not speaking on or behalf of or representing the views of MSCI. But welcome, Simone. Thank you. Thanks, Tripp. Thanks for having me. Yeah, very excited to to get into our topic today. So as you know, uh, this season we're featuring a conversation on climate change. And climate change is a term that carries a lot of different meanings for a lot of different people. I'd love to start with you just offering for us what climate change means to you and the communities you've worked with. Yeah, and I'm glad you've started here. Climate change to me is a, a global phenomenon of uh, transformation that's driven by changes uh, to the usual climate of the planet um, that are especially caused by human activities and and disproportionately affects uh, marginalized communities. And I'm, I'm glad with you that you led with this question. I think it's precisely one of the challenges, um, the difficulties with climate change is that it's this um, nebulous uh, definition and um, we expect all people are able to relate to climate change. Um, um, as, as how policymakers and, and scientists may define it. And what we don't really consider is how the language we use uh, does not speak to their direct you know, concerns and, and culture and identity and, and values. So uh, I think it's one of the, the drivers of confusion and why climate change remains a big, uh, complex problem. Yeah, and I'm glad you actually mentioned that concept of of language in particular playing an important role. What, what are the things you've observed um, language and perspective playing and how climate change has been considered by those different communities? There's a lot of work being done right now to reframe climate change as a, a public health issue, so um, more narrative change work. The research shows that most people think of something like air pollution as a, uh, a distant threat, you know, a geographical uh, distant threat to mm. um, not a part of their environment. Um, and so um, a lot of the work being done is how to redefine climate change. So, you know, public leaders 
can employ both the, the head and the heart to mobilize others around uh, taking action against climate change. I was actually just looking at, at NASA's definition of climate change. It's over a, a paragraph long. It talks about extreme weather events, um, uh, but it's it's uh, it doesn't tie directly to maybe the urgency with which um, action needs to happen and um, and um, especially because it's it's seen as this you know decades long battle um, but uh, even you know fear and, and urgency maybe can lead to inertia so um, I, I think that climate change really affects the most vulnerable communities and, and mostly in developing countries and that's oftentimes um, uh, not a part of the conversation. Um, you know, it, it's people living in in poverty who have the most to lose. Uh, where where I worked in Kenya, drought, especially in northern Kenya, was and remains an enormous problem for farmers, um, you know, whose in, entire livelihoods depend on that land. Um, and so, again, uh, you know, reframing is is needed about who it affects um, and. Uh, and who the some of the uh, the largest um, emitters are. Um, so yeah, language and, and people are something to consider when you talk about climate change, uh, which is that you, you have this influence on how narrative will take shape and form. And so, how do you want to use that power? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and um, the the last little bit of this introduction that I want to cover. You will have other guests this season that may have more of a, a scientific tilt, and so I won't I won't try to challenge your um, your your science back to your high school or college days. But what I would be curious about uh, is not to assume anything on behalf of the audience, and just from your perspective, you you alluded to some of the challenges that especially vulnerable populations face. But but why should people care about a warmer climate in general? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and answering this question, it, it really depends on who the audience is, and, and I mm. think we should be packaged differently for different audiences. When I'm speaking with my clients, I'm talking about their 30-year mortgage that could be underwater, so we discuss climate change exposure and, and risks associated with it, and we try to quantify those risks. Um, mm. um, if I'm speaking with my peers, I'll talk about climate justice, um, you know, which is looking at, at, at global warming as an ethical uh, and, and political issue instead of one that is solely in environmental. Um, mm. You know, as, as human beings, we're wired to care, and so it's, it's worth caring, worth doing something about, especially as it relates to, to health issues. Um, something like air pollution is dangerous and has devastating impact on environment and our health. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great. That's, um, and the, the main takeaway I hear from what you're saying, it touches everybody. Um, right. And there are different reasons why people are caring, but it sounds, in your answer, it's something that everybody's affected by, if I'm right. hearing that right. Great. And what, one of the, so the next thing I'd love to dive into um, and I think you're particularly well positioned to help us understand. So as we as we consider the reasons why the climate is warming, um, 
you know, there's attachment to behavior and, and results of certain activities that organizations um, have exhibited, right? And so take, for mm-hmm. example, just the pollution that a given organization involved in manufacturing might have um, might have emitted over the course of the last few decades, right? There, there is a movement, it feels like, in the last several years and even before to, to better account for how different organizations' activities are actually contributing to uh, climate change and the environment. And I'd love for you to share a little bit with us, as much as you can, uh, what exactly is happening in in this space? What's happening to help organizations better track their activities? I, I know of new corporate structures where organizations are more explicitly stating an intention to to be a little more mindful. There's pledges that organizations are making to, to fund climate mitigation efforts um, and new tools that are being developed too. Can you just maybe give us an overview of, of that landscape that's helping organizations keep better track of what their impact is? Yeah, and it, it's broad. You, you don't have to go, it's broad now. You don't have to go very far back in time to see that investors had limited options in in um, the form of financing sustainability. So on on one end of the spectrum, you had traditional invest investments. So not at all tied to impact. On the other mm-hmm. end of the spectrum, there were charities, maybe um, or CSR, so corporate social responsibility, where mm-hmm. a major corporation like Coca Cola organized a you know a small group, but it was mainly for good marketing, right? Mm. Um, and then maybe somewhere in between was uh, the divestment tool. There's a big divestment movement, um, which still continues today, but um, you know, mainly used as a means to enact political and social change, um, like apartheid in South Africa. And can, um, can you just tell us, yeah. divestment, give us an example. So you, you mentioned apartheid. What, what does that mechanism in, involve? just so we can be sure that Yeah, so um, many funds active in the divestment movement against the apartheid regime in South Africa conducted a negative screen where they would divest out of their investments. Mm. Um, And they may have defined that as a direct tie, an indirect tie, but it was a way to align your values with money. So can you put, you know, your capital toward or away from um, uh, your values. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but now it's really evolved. So those actually were more limited. Now there's um, this evolution has led to business as, they say business as a, a force for good, but also um, shareholders can look at double or triple bottom lines. So, you know, financial, social, and environmental returns. Mm. Um, and there are more products out there. And, and part of this is that there's demand um, from millennials. Uh, there's, uh, you know, regulatory changes. And um, the response has to it has been to increase this optionality. So now you have this a much more nascent field. Um, it's what I would call innovative finance. Um, mm. It's a term that's thrown out a lot, but it's across asset classes. So there weren't just those you know, maybe departments within big corporations. Um, but now there are options for companies to integrate financial and social uh, or environmental turn, returns um, to show that these are compatible and, and um, 
mutually reinforcing objectives, right? Mm. So you have green bond issuances, you have um, climate-focused ETFs, you have um, impact investing. There are things like B Corps, Benefit Corps. Um, ben & Jerry's is one of the biggest ones. Mm. Um, they're development impact bonds. So there's a lot, and I, I can break those down further, but there's just many, many more tools and options now than there were before. Yeah, and I imagine we could probably spend hours or days talking about those different... Yeah. Uh, Options and what I might what I might do for the listeners is is um, put a few links in the notes where uh, we could recommend they maybe go to learn more. Absolutely. Uh, and so it is as a part of this, Simone. Uh, you know, the concept of measurement has become really popular, and I'd love for you, I wanted to pick your brain and ask you to tell us more about this concept of ESG, right? And this is a very hot topic. Uh, first of all, you get to help us understand what that is mm-hmm. and and just sort of open up that that envelope for us. Sure, sure. So uh, ESG stands for environmental, social, and governance factors. Um, and it's a a framework and data. so it it looks at impact measure metrics and um, it also provides investors with a strategy to invest responsibly. Um, so ESG criteria is used to better understand and evaluate how publicly listed companies uh, consider and integrate impact and, and really more effectively manage risk. So this is different from some of the things mentioned before, which are philanthropy and um, how donors can work through um, tax incentives. This is... Um, a way to to measure and um, use a new style of investing. Um, and I, I think this is important to note because the integration piece is um, is key. ESG and and again, some of these other tools used to be thought of as a separate bucket, a, almost a separate asset class. Um, mm-hmm. But now it's really about incorporating additional factors alongside your you know, traditional financial assessment. So um, think of it as an approach or an overlay, um, different from the other tools we're, we're talking about earlier. And it's, it's thriving. It's a, it has huge momentum right now, um, just in the sheer volume of investment that's being slated for ESG. I think it's surpassed 30 trillion and, um, It'll only continue to grow. I saw a number the other day that said compounded growth was like 43% year over year. So it's, it's mm. pretty astounding. Um, and um, so I, I don't know if this would be helpful. I can go more into um, what the, the E, S, and G pillars mean. Uh, but that's ESG from a, um, a bigger picture perspective. Yeah, I, I would love actually to click into that. And, and if you'd even be able, I don't want to put you too much on the spot, but if you'd be able to to couch those definitions in an example of how a company might consider them, mm-hmm. uh, I think that would yeah. be a helpful thing for us to walk through too. Yeah, okay. So uh, if, if you were to reorder the letters, I would mm-hmm. start with G, governance, because it's what most investors and shareholders and stakeholders, um, 
already understands. So governance is focused on corporate behavior. It analyzes um, ownership frameworks, board independence, um, how you know how boards are managing risks, and these are the you know again the things that um, my clients already know a lot about, um, and and what we are also aware of with public disclosures. Um, I think where ESG data can really expose governance issues is through um, sustainability-driven metrics. So there's, so one one example is um, there's a lot of research on female board representation that points to something called the the power of three tipping point, and which is essentially strength in numbers. So if it's one woman, the other board member looks at her, members look at her as a, a token. If it's two women. They're looking to each other just for support. Men may think of them as a, a duo or, or maybe a minority interest. But with three women, that's when real change starts to occur, when, when board effectiveness through uh, diversifying its members starts to occur. Mm. So that's that's the G. The, um, the E pillar is... Um, that's a little bit easier to to understand. Um, that would look at something like water stress, carbon emissions. Um, there's something called greenifying supply chains. So, you know, where are you sourcing your raw materials from? How are you packaging? Um, what are you doing with waste? Um, there's also looking at ownership of, uh, you know, contaminated land. Um, Clean tech is would also go into this pillar. So, you know, a lot of companies are um, you could track patents and to see uh, how they think of, um, you know, more forward looking signals toward um, environmental change. Mm. Um, and then the S pillar is is emerging. There's a there's a big focus right now. I mean, just during the pandemic on labor management. Right. So in a in a market downturn like the one we saw, um, there's a greater magnifying glass or magnification of, of labor shortages, employees being furloughed and laid off, right? So, um, so the S pillar would look at how are companies getting their employees through the crisis, which companies are better or worse, um, almost like a best in class approach uh, relative to their peers. Mm. Um, it can also include health and safety, access to finance. A big one is privacy and data security. So, um, you would take those three pillars. Uh, there are then different ways to use ESG. So a lot of what we've been talking right now is how you define it and, um, the, the data, um, that's, that's underpinning those issues. Um, you know, one, one thing we've talked about is divestment, so completely eliminating a company from a portfolio. But I think it's it's next important to uh, think about how you use ESG. So, um, again, um, as maybe an overlay, how you're uh, using this data alongside um, how you look at investments that are... Um, only looking at financial uh, outcomes, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, 
you know, there, there are new investment practices that involve actively, you know, removing or choosing investments based on the ESG, based on ethical guidelines. So, um, you know, I, I think it's important to note that investors want to draw a T-chart and point to X company that is good and X mm. company that's bad. Um, and I think to be a little controversial here, it, it means that there would be no room for oil and gas, maybe some, again, more forward-looking companies that are um, looking at something like renewable energy. Um, and so... Um, to say that you take the data, um, you look specifically at the E-pillar and um, say that all oil companies are poor ESG performers is kind of overly simplistic, right? So I think mm -hmm. what you do is then take um, the data, you frame it um, toward you know, something like net impact. So relative mm -hmm. to other companies, which are being proactive, who are mitigating risks. Um, which companies have policies and procedures in place, um, which companies are contributing to sustainability, sustainability and, and maybe which ones are, are taking away from it. So, you know, you can solve for this, identifying the, the leaders in the transition toward a low carbon uh, future, you know, which, which are the companies that will help us transition and, and which are just going to become obsolete. Yeah, and, and you mentioned, and I just wanted to try to be sure to connect a thread from earlier. You mentioned the size of the the market now of, of people interested in in putting money uh, into instruments that are connected in some way to ESG, right? And right. so, if, just to be sure I'm following correctly, that that number I think you said maybe was it thirty trillion? T. T. With yes. a T. It's the a large T. Number. Yeah. Uh, so, so there are that number represents uh, the size of the you know of the assets that people are are actively trying to put into instruments that have an ESG lens. Is that a fair right. way to describe that? Okay. Yeah. Okay. And it, yeah. and I what I am excited about um, to have that really deep perspective. And thank you for the thorough overview there. Um, part of what ESG is doing. And what is generating enthusiasm is it's companies, even even those who aren't um, specifically linked to environmental causes, right, that are being pushed and urged to consider how their activities might have impacts that they may not have intended, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the one of the things I'd love to get your perspective on, Simone, um, especially because you've had experience in the private sector, is there's a narrative that human prosperity has increased at a very fantastic rate over the last 300 years in particular since the Industrial Revolution. And in more recent conversation, there's been some concern that that pace of change and the, the prosperity that's been generated has come at the expense of, of the environment in a lot of ways. Um, and there's questions being raised about if companies with their cur current culture of prioritizing growth can actually exist and help us uh, move forward without completely eradicating um, the planet as we know it, right? So mm -hmm. to, to get to my question, is it is it a fair criticism for us to be placing the blame on climate change on companies? Um, and, and where 
you know, where do you see companies being able to go from here considering that ex- potential exposure? Is ESG the solution that, that maybe helps right. move forward? Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's a loaded, loaded the question. The simple question. Right. Simple question. Yeah. Number two. Um, yeah, the, the program that I was at at NYU, um, there was a big focus there on large scale systems change and um, that the change happens at this intersection of uh, a Venn diagram between where markets, um, individual attitudes, beliefs, values, and policy overlap. So I think it may be a fair criticism. I, I, um, I think corporations account for a big part of the acceleration if you look upstream to the, the larger some of the largest emitters of greenhouse gases like oil producers. Um, mm. That's certainly the case. But, you know, other big drivers are agriculture, mainly from livestock, um, the transportation industry. Um, and those activities can balloon uh, based on individual lifestyle choices and decision making. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, h- human activities are responsible, I think, for almost all of the increase in greenhouse, greenhouse gases in the atmosphere over the past um, 100 years. So, you know, in addition to individuals, what are policies in place to, to curb that? Um, and so, you know, are there, um, is this an agenda item for a policymaker? Is there um, a friendly regulatory environment um, of which currently there is certainly not, which we can talk a little bit about, but, um, you know, of, of course, I, I want to acknowledge that the role that more profit-seeking companies um, plays here, you can, you can tie this back to ESG as perhaps a framing of environmental issues um, and um, being um, financially material to a company. So, mm. you know, maybe climate solutions are more centered around their business operations, maybe even a part of the profit. Um, if you like look at patents for, for clean energy. So, you know, along that thread, you're starting to see some of this shift in what, a company is prioritizing. Um, I think pressure is coming from different uh, p- pain points, if you will. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's there's a generational pressure. The the children of CEOs that are at the helm of uh, you know Fortune 500 companies are pressuring their parents. Um, there is work being done right now to. Um, to shift the performance of a company to include things beyond stock performance, right? Which is typically what we talk about, especially mm. around ESG, um, and to include uh, stakeholders. Um, Bob Eccles is uh, is doing a lot of work right now on holding the largest corporations accountable through voluntary participation in, in new working groups and through public declarations, public commitments. Um, and it's all centered right now around changing corporate purpose. Um, we've talked before, just last year, the, the business roundtable announced mm. um, a, they released a, a new statement um, of the, the purpose. It's, it was signed by, um, you know, like I think 200 CEOs. Um, so, um, you know, and they were making a public commitment to 
to lead their companies um, that would benefit all of stakeholders. So customers, employees, um, vendors, suppliers, communities, right? In addition to, to the shareholders. So I think that that really speaks to the heart of maybe the problem that you're tying to it, which is, um, you know, how is uh, shareholder maximization contributing to um, more corporate incidents and ultimately, you know, accelerating climate change? I want to circle back a little bit. We, we talked at the top about the importance and the, the weight of language, right, in, yeah. um, in the climate change conversation. And I, I just would love to, uh, to get your take on how you've seen the language and perspective um, contribute to how climate change, again, is considered, how bias, whether it's conscious or unconscious, impacts our understanding of the danger. Um, mm-hmm. and, and you offered a really helpful introduction to that at the top. I'd love to hear if you have other thoughts on, on sort of the role that those things play, the, the systems that we have in place, how they're, how they're intersecting with climate change today. Right, right. Um, at, at the nonprofit I worked for, we really strived for an environment that encouraged healthy debate. Um, and in part, we worked across continents and through language barriers and cultural differences. And so that meant creating a a culture of um, professional debate, as we called it. Um, And so often the barriers to closing gaps, um, whether we're talking about um, being financially driven or um, driven around uh, your corporate responsibility, it comes from bias. and especially when you're wearing a, a fiduciary duty hat. So, so you know, starting with the lowest hanging fruit, the most common one I hear is during meetings where they're discouraging groupthink um, and and confirmation bias. And you know, it's difficult for institutional investors to be bought into truly innovative experiments and to look at new things. Um, you know, we look for information that confirms our our pre-existing views, and this can be really dangerous, especially as it relates to climate change. Um, what information are you actively searching for, right? Um, mm-hmm. To conserve, to uh, confirm to your, your preconceived notions. So that's that's one. Um, I think uh, recency bias is another one. It, it makes us think the future will look more like the recent past, um, and so. Um, we, so I, I think of this as, um, especially as it relates to climate change, thinking longer term, right? Not just looking at the mm. short term. So mm. the example here is looking at extreme weather events, right? And the fluctuations in temperature, flooding. Um, and so sometimes we talk about th- those as um, isolated events. I think that, you know, thinking about those in the context of a lot longer timeline is really important. Mm. Um and, and another one is uh, fluency bias. So this is where our minds really undervalue ideas that seem foreign and uncomfortable to us. And so a bias is, is um, it's that our opinion of something is, is influenced by how 
easily our brain processes it, right, and understands it. And that in turn affects the decisions we make. So this goes back to the, the public perception and narrative change for something like um, climate change. And it's it's really important to be able to define it in relative terms, to use language that's easy to understand. Um, we prefer things that way that are you know simple, easy to understand, usable. Um, we find simple information more believable. And so how can statistics help with this message? Um, mm. Making it easier for people um, is really key here because there's a lot of noise. Um, people are bombarded with information, right? And so um, there's an organization called the, the Climate Reality Project, and they work to uh, change uh, communication um, around climate change. And they talk about how metaphors really matter. So um, they've done studies on um, individuals that read about the war against global warming. And this mm. actually led to uh, more of a consensus and um, or acceptance really of um, evidence, you know, scientific evidence that a lot of people are um, slow to adopt and believe. Um, and using that language made it more human-centered um, versus something like the race against uh, global warming, right? Mm. So that was, and, and looking at like a global footprint um, or your own footprint and and how they, uh, you know, individuals should reduce their their global footprint. And, and so I think, you know, it's, it's important to see examples of this being used in, in ways that it, it does work. Um, mm. So, you know, there's a lot, I, I actually want to kind of stop. I had a, a couple more examples, but I, I do want to stop here for a second and just acknowledge what's happening this week, um, you know, how it relates to both implicit uh, unconscious bias and outright, you know, racially charged behaviors. We're, we're speaking right now after seeing the, the you know, tragic murder of of George Floyd, um, and so you know, I've I've had that on my mind as we as we started this conversation. It's um, what we're seeing is this incredible mobilizing of of millions of people around the world to to protest and demand change, and and bias is a big part of that discussion right now. You know, around systemic racism and police brutality, and um, so it's it's an important placeholder for all of us just to be mindful of. Absolutely. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, and to extend your point, if I may, it's that, uh, you know, unfortunately we're seeing that some of the, the, the fractures in our systems exist and manifest in one particular element and happen to similarly manifest in another, right? Mm -hmm. So you mentioned earlier on some of the people most affected by climate will be those who are marginalized, and we're seeing a similar, um, similar thing when it comes to justice today. So right. I appreciate you mentioning that. Yeah. Um, what I I would be interested also, Simone, to to get your opinion on is having had experience working in Africa um, and living in Africa. You know, we're speaking as as two people living today in the United States. Uh, I would love your perspective on how the concept and topic and challenge of climate change is being considered 
here versus in the communities where you lived and worked in Africa? Mm -hmm. And the main differences you see both in those communities and in the companies, how, are, how is climate change being considered um, and what are the sort of actions being contemplated over, over on other continents, especially Africa? Right, right, yeah. This is also another big question, and it's been kind of a difficult one for me. You know, Tripp, we've talked about this before, where I've looked uh, critically at what my role is in being a, in a being a, a critical voice, or at least a voice that kind of represents the communities of which I work. So I do want to acknowledge that just that and and that I'm speaking of a you know from a place of of privilege and these are just purely observations but mm -hmm. what I see is that um, the West tends to focus on uh, fixes and mm. and most often we're talking about the symptoms of the problem and and this is you know in very general terms I'm speaking but mm -hmm. um, you know Talk, not necessarily talking about the root cause, um, not really talking about um, trying to solve for the, the power dynamics, the, again, the role that bias and, and underlying beliefs play. Um, what I see is the U.S. tends to push forward this enormous hope we have for innovators and, and game changers. I used to live in San Francisco, this, you know, disruptive mm. technology, right? But it's, it's in, in the develop, in the international development context, it's sometimes at the cost of efforts to, um, uh, or, or that it really overemphasizes this um, need for pilots and, um, you know, funding is conditional on more and more data. And so, as it relates to climate change, there's, you know, the landscape is the, the international development landscape. It's, it's a graveyard of pilots and demonstrations and mm. of theories of change and, you know, more data that needs to prove that something works. Um, and, and so it's kind of naive and wasteful to repeat that theory over and over again, um, um, especially when you're dealing with limited resources. So, you know, what, what I saw in my experience in East Africa was that communities were extremely resourceful. There was a focus on narrower approaches to change. Um, innovation uh, did not need to be the next greatest technology. Um, mm. uh, you know, years, years ago, I worked on a project in Kenya, and we used... Um, a model that was um, to to build, to measure um, through data, and then learn um, new ideas coming out of it. Um, and it, it wasn't tied to major funding, and so we were able to make mistakes, like big mistakes, over and over again with with a lot of different stakeholders at the table with us. So, you know, that that's just kind of the the approach that's um, I think useful as a a takeaway. Um, Kenya, in particular, is looking at large-scale uh, renewable energy product projects. Um, many of the areas I worked in went from completely off the grid to uh, fully solar-enabled within something like one to two years, right? Mm. So they, they sort of leapfrogged energy or power solutions, um, which is in some ways unbelievable and in other ways completely plausible right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Wonderful. The you know this. I hope the audience will forgive. We've had an incredibly sweeping conversation here on a lot of topics that I think are um, maybe not always acknowledged as being as closely connected as they are. So I appreciate you going with me as I've led us from from different rooms in this sure. in this conversation house. I, I'd love to as we as we begin to wrap up. I'd love to turn and end on a on a positive note. So. What's tell us, Simone? What's one reason for us to be hopeful in our effort mm-hmm. to slow climate change? We've talked a lot about the emergence of new uh, methods, and and you, of course, are steeped in the idea of measurement and ESG mm-hmm. in particular. But tell us, what is what's making you hopeful mm-hmm. about our effort to slow climate change? Yeah. So uh, from where I sit, I see investors um, every day that that call trying to you know, include, ask for ways that they can include sustainability in their, their business practices, right? It's, it's now a given and um, leaders are, again, from these massive uh, organizations are able or, or much less able to say, I'm gonna sit on the sidelines and you know, maybe participate at a future point. Um, it's that they have to understand their climate risks and they, um, they have to be able to tell all stakeholders uh, where they are in this journey, right? And so how I think about not just ESG, but responsible investing is, can these provide uh, tools, um, better frameworks for transparency, calls to action? Um, you know, how can... Uh, the implementation or the, the execution of the change that we're starting to see be more effective and more efficient. It's it's uh, it's taking the the known problems that we have, all this momentum, um, you know, the the general the generational uh, shift, uh, uh, you know, wealth transfer um, to millennials that are going to be using that money in very different ways, right? Mm. Um, the various levers of change and then making some uh, uh, improvements and um, you know this new field of sustainable finance uh, prompts companies to really change their their DNA internally right so that they can um, uh, help and, and slow the growth of climate and this won't solve for everything right but it's um mm-hmm. it's a really really positive uh signal that's encouraging and i i also would love to solicit from you a resource that you might recommend to yeah. the audience that um where they could go to learn more what's a resource that's been especially helpful for you to be more educated on climate change yeah, I've I've named a, a few of um, the organizations and the kind of thought leaders in this space, so definitely would love to include that. I guess the one shout out would be for an organization called the Narrative Initiative. Again, this just ties back to a lot of the the same um, threads we've been talking about today, but um, they're doing great work right now. They have worksheets, they have uh, tons of research, they have reports, they have some podcasts. There's a blog, so. I think it's like narrativeinitiative.org. It's super mm. easy. Um, so yeah, go go sign up. Great, great, great. I've exhausted my question set, but want to be sure to give <laughs> a moment if there's any other last thoughts. 
Uh, no, I think this has been really wonderful. I'm, I'm really excited to see where you take this. And I personally am excited to learn from other guests that you have on the podcast. So thanks so much. Thanks for including me. Well, thanks so much for joining, Simone. It's been a, it's been a rich conversation and a pleasure. Thank you. Sure. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Check the show notes for links and information mentioned in the episode. And explore the other episodes in this season to learn more on this topic. Before we go, subscribe to our show to get new episodes as soon as they come online. And please rate us on whatever podcast app you use. That helps other people discover the show as well. We'd be excited to hear from you. Send us a mail at revolvepodcast at gmail.com. <laughs>